0: based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 1st, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, staff writer Daniel Clary is here with a story on finding mid-sized black holes. Did you know they were missing? And Joseph Poor is here to talk about his research toting up the environmental footprint of food production globally and how we can use that information to reduce the footprint. Now we have Daniel Cleary, staff writer for science, and he's here with a story on missing medium-sized black holes, or finding missing medium black holes, would you say, Dan?
1: Yes. I mean, astronomers have been looking for them for decades. Black holes are notoriously hard to detect because they don't emit any light. Right. But you can see them various ways but the medium-sized ones have always been missing.
0: And what is a medium-sized black hole? How big is that?
1: You measure black holes uh, usually in terms of how many um, equivalents of the sun's mass we're talking Mm -hmm. about. So you can find ones quite easily which are a few times the mass of the sun or a few tens of the mass of the sun. And also you can find supermassive ones, which are millions or billions of times more massive than the sun. But the ones in between that are thousands or tens of thousands, they just, you know, are hiding themselves or else they're not there. That's what people want to know.
0: Right. And the news here is that some have been detected. Can you talk about how these researchers found them or think they found them?
1: Yes, the way um, astronomers usually find black holes is by uh, x-rays, because black holes, although they don't shine themselves, when they suck in a lot of matter, as it's approaching the black hole, it gets heated up to incredibly high temperatures and shines in x-rays. So you can see an x-ray signature from the center of a distant galaxy or from a particular star, and that's the sign of this super hot matter getting uh, sucked in. So, they wanted to look for small galaxies that might have a medium sized black hole in its center, but there aren't good X ray survey telescopes that would be able to find it. You have to look for X rays with a satellite because the rays are blocked by the atmosphere.
0: Mm-hmm
1: they didn't have a good satellite to look for them, so they had to find a different way. So they identified something in the um, optical spectrum of galaxies, so the normal light that comes to us into telescopes, that possibly could show there was a black hole there. And it's to do with the way the gas around the black hole in gas clouds is heated up. And because it gets heated up, it's moving around very fast. So the the spectral lines, you know, that showing uh, particular frequencies get spread out. And this signature, they were able to identify and could find uh, smaller galaxies that had black holes at the center.
0: How does this tell us the size of the black holes? So, the other the, the technique you described earlier was able to pick up supermassive ones and small ones, but this one is somehow able to pick up these. Medium-sized black holes, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So they specifically looked for medium-sized galaxies.
0: Oh,
1: okay. So that was a a starting point. But also this particular spectral line, which shows hydrogen atoms around the black hole, which have been ionized and then recombined, so they emit some light. Just the number of photons, you know, the sort of brightness of that line tells you how many hydrogen atoms are being ionized Mm -hmm. and essentially how bright the black hole is. And its brightness tells you its mass. Okay. So so it's a sort of indirect method, but it allows them to scan lots and lots of galaxies because they have their spectra in astronomical archives. And so they could look at a large number of galaxies to look for these particular... uh, objects that they want to find.
0: Oh, so they already had pictures of it. They just had to find the pictures once they knew the signature.
1: That's right. This was a data mining exercise. So they didn't do observations to start with. They just found a technique where they could identify black holes via this particular broadening of the spectral lines. They went to an archive that uh, has, I think it had nearly a million galaxy spectra in it. This is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And they applied their data mining to automatically find this signature amongst all the spectra.
0: And how many medium sized black holes did they find?
1: Well, they came across 305, what they call candidate intermediate black holes, amongst that million uh, galaxies. But there are other things that could mimic this signature. So they had to get rid of false positives. So they did other things such as looking in other archives at the same object to to see whether that particular signature appeared at other times. And they also, this was the real acid test, they then looked for x-ray signatures of these objects in other archives. Mm -hmm. So the Chandra satellite, which is run by NASA and SWIFT, and a European one called XMM-Newton, they all have archives of uh, spectra, and so they looked for their 300 candidates in those archives, and they found 10 that had a very definite X-ray signature showing that there was uh, a black hole in their centers.
0: So this sounds really real. So (laughs) what do we do with this? What does this mean for, you know, the theories that had um, evolved based on the idea that maybe there weren't any medium-sized black holes, that there were only very, very small ones and very, very big ones?
1: Yes. Well, The long assumption had been that to get a supermassive black hole, you must have started with one that was originally just a single star. Mm And over the billions of years of the universe has been around, it has slowly got bigger and bigger and drifted to the center of the galaxy and then formed a supermassive black hole just by uh, eating up matter. The problem with that theory is that we didn't find any medium-sized ones. So where are all the half-formed supermassive black holes? So that was a problem. So having found them helps to support that theory that they grow gradually. But there's another problem with supermassive black holes in that they find some enormous ones with billions of solar masses very early in the universe. So they couldn't have had the time wow to grow up that slow and gradual way. So that, again, posed a problem for them. So theorists came up with the idea that in the particular conditions in the early universe, you could have very large gas clouds which collapse straight down into into a supermassive black hole. So they're ready formed at about um, somewhere between 100,000 and a million solar masses and that gives them a head start Mm -hmm. and then they can grow from there and end up you know with millions or billions of solar masses sort of like getting a jump start on uh, on their evolution
0: so it sounds like both things Could be true at this point.
1: That's what uh, people were saying to me when I spoke to them about it. This doesn't, you know, refute one or other of the two possible scenarios, but they probably both exist. And so normal galaxies like our own probably uh, form the sort of slow, steady way. But these giants that existed in the early universe probably formed by direct collapse.
0: And what's next for finding more medium-sized black holes? What percentage of the universe has been examined at this point and do and the researchers expect to find many, many more?
1: They do expect to find more. This was just a first sweep of that archive. The big bottleneck is X-ray satellites, mm-hmm. so they don't have a big archive of galaxy spectra in the X-ray area. So. Uh, there's another uh, X-ray telescope going up maybe later this year or next called eROSITA, which is going to be on a Russian satellite. And that is an X-ray survey telescope. So it's going to be doing exactly what they need, covering large portions of the sky and getting lots of uh, X-ray spectra that they can examine to find more medium-sized black holes.
0: Okay, Daniel, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Daniel Cleary is a staff writer for Science. You can read his story about medium-sized black holes and more at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Joseph Poor on reducing the environmental impact of food production and consumption globally. <music> Understanding the inputs and outputs of food production is a tricky business, especially when you're looking across different contexts like farms on different continents growing wheat or rice. The inputs and outputs are going to be different depending on farming practices. What kind of transport is common there and many other variables? Well, this week in science, Joseph Poor and Thomas Nemachek took a close look at food production's environmental impact on a global scale. And Joseph is here to talk about it. Welcome Joseph.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay, so we say global scale here. What does that mean you had to do? What kind of data did you have to collect to figure out what's going on at this very, very large scale?
2: Okay, so over the last 15 years, researchers have been visiting farms and other producers in the food supply chain in countries around the world. They've been collecting, as you said, information on the inputs, outputs, and practices of these producers and calculating environmental impacts from these data. So We consolidated about 750 published studies, which have surveyed 40,000 farms and 1,600 processors, packaging types, and retailers. We then made a series of methodological corrections for differences between these studies. We then ensured that when we weighted each study and scaled our sample data to the global level, our sample reconciled to known values for land use, deforestation, water use, and agricultural methane.
0: Right. So you looked at the, would you say, the supply chain or the life chain? Can you describe where you started and where you ended when you were looking at food production?
2: So we started with the clearing of land for agriculture and all the emissions that causes. We then looked at the production of inputs such as fertilizer and pesticides and their transport to farm. We assessed all the major emissions that are created on the farm, the land use for crops, livestock and livestock feed, and also the water used on the farm. We then assess the environmental impacts of transport, processing, packaging, and all the way through to
0: retail. Okay, that's a lot. And then what markers were you looking at? What impacts were you looking at when it comes to, you know, all these different steps? What impacts were you looking at in the environment?
2: We looked at five important environmental indicators. Firstly, the land used to produce food. Low land use equals greater food production per unit of land which makes it an important food security indicator as well as an environmental indicator. Globally, agriculture covers a huge 43% of the world's ice and desert-free land. Secondly, we looked at freshwater withdrawals. We weighted these withdrawals by local water scarcity. Thirdly, or fourthly, we looked at acidification and eutrophication. In general, these two emissions are responsible for the degradation of terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems, and agriculture is a major driver of both of them. Finally, we looked at greenhouse gas emissions. The entire food system represents 26% of anthropogenic GHG emissions, including non-food agriculture and other causes of deforestation. It's about a third of GHG emissions, so an extremely important sector.
0: Okay. So we have a lot of data. What percentage of the world's food production is represented by all these farms that you looked at and in these life cycles?
2: The foods we assess represent about 90% of protein and calorie consumption. And in our sample, we have producers from almost every country in the world. Off the top of my head, about 120 countries. So it's a good sample, and we can check how good the sample is by reconciling, say, the average yield of each crop to known global yields from FAO stat, which reconcile well. Post-farm, there are hundreds of different packaging types, ways of processing food, and also different retailers in our sample.
0: So here we have... This big sample of how food is produced, its impact on the environment. What are some of the things that you found when you looked across all these different values?
2: What immediately struck us was just how variable environmental impacts are both within and between products. For staple products, say rice, a high-impact farm creates six times more greenhouse gas emissions per serving than a low-impact farm. A pint of beer can create three times more emissions and use four times more land than another. So two products that look exactly the same in the shops can have dramatically different impacts on the planet. And today, we have no real way of knowing this when we're deciding what to eat. I mean, one product that really stood out to us was beef. On on, on land use, high-impact beef uses over 750 meters squared of land per kilogram. So just to put that in context, 10 kilograms of high-impact beef uses a football pitch worth of land. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. However, low-impact producers use just 15 meters squared per kilogram. That's not a 10% difference or a 50% difference. It's a 50 times difference or 4,900% difference.
0: It seems like this kind of information could be useful for consumers, as you said, but also for producers. So what could they do when they, you know, as this data set goes public, what can, you know, someone who works in this take from this information?
2: So the focus of this study was really to provide the evidence base for a different approach to monitoring agriculture and engaging producers and consumers to reduce food's environmental impact. Specifically, we're putting forward an approach where producers monitor their own impacts, flexibly decide between multiple mitigation options, and then communicate these impacts up the supply chain and through to consumers. So this draws on a lot of existing thinking, but we've really focused on bringing it together and providing the evidence for it.
0: Okay. Speaking of telling consumers what's going on, you talk a lot about labeling in the paper. So what, how, how would this label, what would it look like or how would it work you know, for someone who's in the grocery store?
2: Yes, that is certainly an interesting question. There are studies out there that are looking at this and thinking about ways to communicate what is quite complex information to consumers Tesco is a large food retailer in the UK, began putting carbon labels on its products in around 2007 and found that even one indicator was quite hard to communicate. I mean, this is just saying that we're in the shop, how much information can you really take in in one go? So I think it has to be some sort of simple red, amber, green label that includes information on all important indicators, but in a simple and accurate way. However, I think most importantly, it has to have publicity surrounding it, some connotations and some feel good about choosing products that have the green label on them. I think it's not just about the information it contains, but what these these labels represent.
0: What factoid about your findings do you share at cocktail parties? Like what surprises people about about this data set?
2: I mean, um, the main reason I started this project in the first place was because I wanted to know if I could reconcile what was then my own personal consumption of animal products with a rapidly degrading global environment. I wanted to know if there are farmers out there producing low environmental impact animal products. However, despite all the variation we see in the data, this doesn't translate into animal products with lower impacts than substitute vegetable equivalents. I.e., it's always going to be better at present to change what you consume rather than trying to purchase sustainable animal products. And I think that's quite a striking finding.
0: Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier that it's not. It wouldn't be very feasible for everyone in the world to stop eating meat, but if a certain percentage of people do stop eating meat, that could have a big impact.
2: Yes, I think that's right. So the first scenario we consider is an animal product-free diet. We estimate global land use would decline by a huge 3.1 billion hectares, or about 75%. We estimate foods' different emissions would decrease by up to 60 to 70%, depending on where you live. So this is transformative. However, it's going to be hard to encourage this kind of widespread behavioural change in the near term. So in the second scenario, we say if consumers knew the impact of producers, not just products, they could potentially avoid buying production from the highest impact producers. And with a 50% reduction in consumption of animal products targeting the highest impact producers, this achieves about 70% of the emissions reduction in the previous scenario. So we're getting pretty close to the previous scenario's potential. And that's important because it's a smaller behavioral change with a multiplied benefit.
0: Thank you, Joseph.
2: Cheers, Sarah. Thank you.
0: Joseph Poor is a researcher in the Department of Zoology and in the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Oxford. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen to us on the Science site. On the site, you can also read about the research and news stories discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org podcasts. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.